Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Fornication, and finally, simply, one who was demon-possessed. We pick up today in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. We're looking at some teaching by Jesus that a lot of modern people gag upon. Jesus has made some outrageous claims that, if not true, would either make him completely insane or purposely deceitful. Or is it possible that the things that he says about himself and his relationship to God are actually true? On this point, William Barclay writes perceptively, It is not difficult to honor oneself. One can quite easily surround oneself with a synthetic kind of halo. It is easy enough, in fact, it is fatally easy to bask in the sunshine of one's own approval. It is not overtly difficult to win honor from men. The world honors the successful and the ambitious man. But the real honor is the honor which only eternity can reveal, and the verdicts of eternity are not the verdicts of time. And so they ask, just who do you think that you are? Now, there's no more direct way of finding out the answer to that question than to ask him And, of course, to ask him in the way that it was asked. If you see right here in the middle of the passage, they say to him, Who do you think you are? Now, let us ask the same question. In fact, let us ask three questions to the text because all three are addressed here. Who does he think he is? Who do they think he is? And who do you think he is? But I also want to ask you, who do you think you are. The reason why I ask that is because how we perceive perceive ourselves is critically important in regards to how we live our lives. This has two aspects for the believer. One, we don't want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And two, we don't want to think of ourselves as anything less than what God declares us to be. We can either view ourselves the way God views us as it's contained in Scripture, or we can have a faulty view of ourselves, good or bad, by listening to the lies of the enemy, or even the lies that other people have laid upon us. Satan is the father of lies, Jesus says. He mentions that over and over again. The main way he deals with people is through lies and false beliefs in their heart. The way that he deals with people is not fang marks on their backs, but falsehoods in their hearts. That means you had better check your beliefs. And to do that, you need to saturate your mind with the Word of God. Say, for example, your parents told you that you would never amount to anything in life. And you still feel like you're just kind of bound up by that. Look. You're not with your parents anymore. What is it that's oppressing you? It's the lie. It's the lie down deep in your soul that really is the thing that is oppressing you. 
Things like if you believe that all men are louses or that all women want control or I'm a mess or unless I accomplish this, I'm just spit. Or if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let this thing happen to me. If you believe those things, they control your life. It's the lie that controls your life, not what other people have done to you. It's what you believe. Satan is the father of lies. That is how he controls people. That's why anytime you see how Jesus Christ deals with the devil, it's always through the scripture. Always. Jesus always had the scripture right at his fingertips. In a sense, Jesus has planted all kinds of landmines in Satan's heart so that when the devil tried to move, when he tried to get a foothold, he was always blowing himself up. He was constantly being refuted by the truth. What we think on this morning matters, especially considering this culture that we live in. It's easy to allow this world to put us into a funk or functilius in the Greek. (laughs) Not really. I made that up. This is why we're told in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds fabulous, you may be thinking. But how do I do that? How do I get to that point? The next verse tells us, Finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The French word sabbat refers to a wooden shoe. We get our word sabotage from it. You're wondering, what does a wooden shoe and the act of sabotage have in common? Well, it seems that some Dutchmen found that an effective way to work at French manufacturing plants was by tossing their wooden shoes into the gears of the machinery. You know, just like that, worry and anxiety is like a wooden shoe cast in the machinery of our being. It disrupts the works of our minds and destroys the machinery of our bodies. This is why we are told to meditate on good things. As I said in the past, meditation is not just something that yogurt-sucking gurus do. Meditation is a biblical concept. That is why Paul just told us in that Philippian passage that if we don't want to live lives that are marked by anxiety, we are to meditate upon those things that he has listed. And guess how we do that? One way we control our thought life is through self-talk. Now, please hear me out here. I know I'm sounding like a psychiatrist, but I don't believe all mankind's problems can be reduced to poor toilet training. But there is some truth to that part of psychology concerning self-talk. Now, honestly, most of us talk to ourselves all of the time. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on my mail route talking to myself 
and then looked up to find one of my customers staring right at me. Now, they might give me an awkward smile while they making sure they stay behind their lock screen door. But we all talk to ourselves. We are each of us our own all day, all talk radio stations with just one devoted listener. So the only question is, are the programs encouraging or discouraging? Our thoughts have incredible power in our lives. And if our self-talk is defeating, then we are always going to feel like quitting. On the other hand, encouraging self-talk can be life-giving. Now, to prove this, we can see this in the Psalms. This is Psalm 42, verse 5. This psalm is seminal to what we're talking about this morning. Here the psalmist allows us to listen in on his inner monologue. He asks himself, Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I think it's important to note that the psalmist is not denying the reality of his present condition. He is not some starry-eyed dreamer who is singing, don't worry, be happy, when the world all around him is in flames. No, he is honest with his reality. But for some reason, at this point in his life, he's just down. Maybe it's a Monday. Actually, in the psalm's context, we're not given what it is. But in verse 3 of that psalm, the psalmist does say, My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Don't you just love Job's comforters? Now, admittedly, I'm reading into this, but it would seem the psalmist has gone through some tough times. And to add to that, the enemy has made sure to send him some people to try to get him to question God and his care. Now, here's what we have to get. The psalmist now just has two choices. He can listen to these miserable comforters and sink even further into despair or he can do what he did. Given the choice of staying in the funk or rising in faith, he chose the latter. It's as if he says, wait a minute, why my soul are you so disturbed and downcast? To me, it reminds me of the prodigal son, who while standing ankle deep in pig slop, we are told, and I quote, he came to his senses. The psalmist is doing the exact same thing as the prodigal. He's remembering, wait a minute, I have a father who loves me. And so I'm going to put my hope in him and I will yet praise him regardless of these circumstances. Why? Because he's my savior and he's my God. So now we see that it all comes down to our choices, doesn't it? We choose our thoughts the same way we choose a TV show or what to eat for dinner. At any time, we have the ability to change the channel or the menu. And so when negative or self-condemning thoughts begin to start, it's time to change the channel to a better show. Here's the thing the writer of Hebrews said to those who are growing weary and losing heart. He writes, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Translation, cast off the ballast. 
The phrase translated throw off comes from a compound word in the Greek. It could be translated to lay something down and then push it beyond your reach. The writer speaks of those who are worn out and about ready to give up. He tells them to identify what is weighing on them, set it down, and then kick it away. Hope we can all remember that the next time we begin to drift into negativity, hopelessness, and despair. Let's get into the habit of immediately talking to the Lord and then talking to ourselves. Verse 56, please. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Now, to fully appreciate this section, we need to remember that the Jews absolutely venerated Abraham. But I thought of something this week. Earlier, they had accused Jesus as being born out of wedlock because they believed a virgin birth was impossible. But what about Abraham? Was it any more impossible that God would give a child to Abraham, who who was 100 years old, and to Sarah, who was 90 years old? I love the way John Ortberg points out how absurd it would be to have a baby being born in a neonatal unit with Medicare picking up the tab. (laughs) He writes, Sarah will be the only one in the grocery store buying Pampers and Depends for the same family. And they're all eating Grover baby food since there's not a single tooth in the family. And when they go out for a walk, everybody uses a walker. At the time of the gospel, Abraham had lived more than 2,000 years earlier. Jesus could not have possibly seen him, and so they twisted his words. But the Lord had not said that he had seen Abraham, but that Abraham had prophetically seen him. Jesus tells them, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, this is a very important statement that he's making. They can hardly believe their ears because Abraham, like all of Judaism at that time, was looking forward to what the prophets called the day. Go back into the prophets, go into them, and you'll see them. They're always talking about the day. It's often called the day of the Lord or sometimes just called the day. What is the day? Well, in this context, it is the day in which the Lord comes back. Psalm 96 says, The heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the sea will roar and all that fills it. The fields exalt and all that's within them. Then shall the trees of the woods sing for joy, for he comes to judge the earth. See, the Lord will come back and put down suffering, put down injustice, and one day make everything right. That's what they were all looking for, including Abraham. And here Jesus has the audacity to say, Abraham rejoiced and longed to see my day. What he is saying is, I am the fulfillment of all Abraham's hopes for salvation. He's saying, my day is the day. My coming is the coming. I'm the salvation, and I will one day set up a millennial kingdom to prove it. Well, they can't believe their ears. I mean, this is incredible. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What that could only mean is when Abraham got that promise, Abraham said, so I can trust you, because this is a God of grace, 
Not a God who says, well, if you live up to my perfect standard, if you do all this just right, if you're really faithful, if your faith is a work, if you're really faithful and committed to me, then I will accept and bless you. Who wants a religion like that? But this is a God of grace who says, if you don't fulfill your word, I will pay your penalty. That is why the gospel is called the good news. Verse 58, please. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. I find it tragically ironic that Jesus was surrounded by men who were masters of the manuscript. They were the dedicated guardians of the scripture, but they failed to recognize the living word when he was staring them right in their face. Being preoccupied with every jot and tittle, they were unable to connect the obvious dots. Notice he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. You don't understand me, he says. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, they exploded inside. Do you know why they exploded? They picked up not a rope to hang him. They picked up not a sword to cut him. They picked up stones because they knew exactly what he meant. To them, what he said was blasphemy, and the sentence for blasphemy was stoning. See, their minds immediately went back to Exodus chapter 3 where Moses met God in the burning bush. Moses says, who are you? What is your name? Who should I say has sent me? God says, I am that I am. Ever since that moment, Moses and his descendants always knew this was the greatest and the highest expression of divine self-reference. There has never been a more profound revelation of who God is than that statement. It's the most profound revelation to the understanding that made him a unique God in the world of lesser gods and of religions and philosophies. Because when he says, I am that I am, he is saying, I am uncaused. I am self-existent. I have no beginning. I couldn't have begun. If I would have begun, something would have had to have caused me. But I am the cause of all causes. I'm the uncaused cause. I am transcendent above the entire universe. I existed before there was a universe. There is no beginning, no ending to me. There's that great hymn by William Billings that goes, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. The royal guest you entertain is not of common birth, but second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. That's Jesus, the second of the great I am and the God of heaven and earth. He said so. You know when he said, I'm the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob? Now we know what he meant. What he is saying is, I am the God who works with very unpromising material. I took Abraham the coward and Isaac who favored Esau over Jacob and poisoned the family system for years. I took Jacob the deceiver and I used all of them. I changed the world through them. 
I work with unpromising material. Aren't you glad this morning? And because of this, I and I alone am worthy of your praise and your devotion. See, the one thing Jesus Christ does over and over again throughout his teaching is he tries to get us off of the fence. See, on every page he is saying, either crown me or kill me. And I know there are plenty of people who do everything they can do to stay on that fence. There are even a lot of Christians on the fence. What do I mean? Well, your legs are on this side where you face Jesus. You go to him when you're in trouble, and you do believe all the doctrines, but you don't throw yourself at his feet and treat him as to who he says he is, which is God Almighty. But if he is God, we have to take the limits off of our allegiance. Think of it this way. If the distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles, if that was just the thickness of a single piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a piece of lint in the entire universe, which is filled with more galaxies than scientists think or more than the grains of sand on the seashore. And Jesus Christ says, I created that. And I hold it together with my pinky, a word of my power. I ask us, is this the kind of person you ask to be an assistant in your life? Is this the kind of person you say, don't call me, I'll call you? This is the kind of person you say, well, you know what? I'll do this and I'll do that if you do this and you do that. The thing is, if we aren't careful, we can look great on the outside and be lukewarm on the inside without anyone knowing it. Whenever Connie goes out of town, I have to cook, well, microwave for myself. Now, if left to myself, I would just have basically two staples of food. Cocoa Krispies, which are really hard to mess up as long as the milk isn't expired, and beef and bean burritos. Now, there is some effort involved to enjoy that second culinary delight. The first time I cooked them, I took them out of the microwave, sat down to take a big bite, only to discover that the outside was extremely hot, but the inside was still cold. Turns out you actually have to expend the effort to turn them over halfway through the cooking cycle. As I thought about today's lesson, I came to realize that too often we can be like those burritos, hot on the outside but cold on the inside. Now, no one would know we look hot, but we know deep inside that our devotion is ice cold. But true devotion implies that we're hot on both the outside and the inside. There is no mediocrity, and we have, may have forgotten that our God is a jealous God. Now, imagine a man proposing to his girlfriend by saying, Honey, I love you, and I really want to marry you. I'll take good care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll be a great father to our children. All I ask is that you allow me one day a year to spend with another woman. Now, ladies, would you accept that kind of offer? That's why God had been a poison, wasn't it? Well, in a similar sense, it's ridiculous for us to think that God would be willing to accept part-time love and devotion from us. I guess the question we must all ask ourselves this morning is, 
is God first in my life? So often we tend to compartmentalize our lives. This is our work part. This is our play part. This is my family part. And this is my money part. And finally, this is my God part. We try to fool ourselves into thinking that we can just separate these different parts of our lives and they won't impact any other part. And the area that people really try to do this is in the God part. Most people are fine thinking, okay, God, I'll let you have Sundays, but that's it. That's my God day, and that ought to be enough. I don't want you getting into my work part, my family part, and I especially don't want you getting into my money part. But according to Jesus, that's not the way God wants it. He wants the whole enchilada or beef burrito in my case. He doesn't just want the God part. He wants all parts of your lives. He wants the whole thing. But Sally, I'd venture to guess that some people don't even care enough to even give God a God part. They think about God rarely, and if at all, and if they do think of him, they're likely just to give him the scraps of whatever is left of their lives. A.W. Tozer said it like this, We may want God, but we want something else more, and we always get what we want most. That is so true. I have learned over the years that people will always make time for whatever is truly important to them. Now, the concept of being totally committed to something is not a foreign one in this world that we live in. Many people give themselves over to people, material, possessions, or even their careers. The world calls this kind of devotion being addicted. Now, we should also be addicted, but not to the lesser things this world tries to offer us. What then? This is 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all things be done with love. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, there was the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's what we should be addicted to, ministry, loving God, and out of that, loving one another. But how do we get addicted? The same way you get addicted to anything else in life, by repeated and continual exposure. People don't get addicted to alcohol the first time they take a sip of Mad Dog 2020. And if you don't know what Mad Dog 2020 is, consider yourself fortunate. (laughs) But you become addicted when drinking becomes more important than anything else in your life. Well, hopefully you're thinking at this point, well, I want to be addicted to God, but where do I start and how do I do it? A good starting point is making God first in your day. What do you do when you start your day, whether your day starts at 5 a.m. or 5 p.m.? Does God know that he is first in your life? I know this can be a challenge. It's a challenge for me also. But intimacy with God will never be a happenstance or an accident. We have to carve that time out purposely. It is a carefully cultivated and nurtured when his followers make a decision to seek him fully in every aspect of their lives. Now, having a quiet time is never going to be easy. But if we want to become addicted, continual exposure to that is the only way. Well, what if, what if I miss a day? Do we just give up and not try to do better the next day? Well, back to my alcoholic example. What if a drunk misses a day drinking because he has no money? 
Does his addiction stop? Sadly, no. He'll find a way to drink the next day, and the cycle will start all over again, even if that means drinking Listerine. It's the same with being addicted to God. Just because you miss a day doesn't mean the addiction ceases. In fact, the Holy Spirit will prompt you even more strongly to once again feed your addiction to the things of God. Just don't give up. Because that's how addictions finally cease. When over a long period of time you quit doing the thing that you were addicted to. But hopefully our addictions will continue. I think one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible is verse 59 where we read, But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them so that he passed by. After being absent 1,000 years, the Shekinah glory reappeared in the person of Jesus Christ. But because the people rejected him, the light departed once again from the temple and so passed them by. Where did Jesus go? Well, in the next chapter, we'll see exactly where he went. He found a blind man. He found me. If you are a Christian, he found you also. Lord, we do thank you that you are the great I am. You are everything that we need in life, Lord. And anytime we try to put anything in your place, like the God Dagon, I pray that it would just, just shatter before the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Give us all, starting with this pastor, a greater hunger for you and the things of God. Let the things of this world grow strangely dim. We ask in your name. Amen.